Okay, if you will, please uh, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're looking at verses 22 to 30. Uh, If you don't have a bulletin, it's page 814, 814 in the Pew Bibles there. Um, Yeah, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, out of Romans for the time being. We'll pick that up next January. Uh, We're here in Mark to learn about Jesus, and we will do so by looking at these famous amen statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Mark. Um, If you grew up like I did in the southern United States and you're around a lot of country preachers or if you're anywhere near uh, the African-American church, uh, you would would get these very excitable sermons and you'd get somebody to say, uh, if you're with me, can I get an amen? And everybody would say, you guys have seen enough American television, congratulations. Um, It happened in Columbia too. Um, because there was like this code, this way to speak if you were a Christian in Colombia, um, where, you know, especially if you're speaking to a pastor, I would be out with somebody, oh yeah, I, I, I will pray that your mother feels better soon. Amen, pastor. Amen. Uh, isn't it a beautiful day that we're having? Amen, pastor. Amen. This hamburger is outstanding. Amen. We use this so much that I wonder if we really understand what we mean when we say amen. Um, It's something that Christians have been doing ever since Christianity began. We learn to say amen from our Jewish spiritual ancestors. It's a way to express agreement, approval of someone else's words. This is why... Uh, When we say it, it's usually at the end of a prayer, at the end of a statement. It's to say all that she or he just said, I agree with. Yes, that's what I say too. Amen. That's what we mean when we say amen. But what does Jesus mean when he says amen? Uh, First of all, when you look at the Gospels, it may surprise you. But amen is said 100 times in the Gospels and only said from the lips of Jesus. No one else says it. Isn't that curious? And that may be because of how Jesus says amen. It's not at the end of a prayer or at the end of what someone else is saying. Jesus says amen at the beginning of a statement. Truly I say to you, where truly in Greek is amen, or in the Gospel of John, it's always doubled, truly, truly, I say to you. No one else in the New Testament or in any Jewish literature of that age says amen to introduce a statement except Jesus. Why is that? It's because when Jesus speaks, God himself is speaking. When Jesus starts a sentence with, Amen, I say to you, what's about to follow is perfectly reliable and true because it proceeds from the mouth of God himself. So when Jesus says, Amen, we ought to lean in to listen because he's about to tell us something really, really important. And this morning we have the first Amen statement in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22. And I'll invite you to stand as I read it. Mark chapter 3, 
And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he, talking about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that he has an impure spirit. The grass withers and the flowers, they fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So what does Jesus have to say to us this morning that is so important that he starts the sentence with, Amen. Whatever you do, don't press the red button. You've seen this in in film. You've seen it on television shows. It's very popular. One of my favorites is from uh, the second Guardians of the Galaxy, where plot synopsis here, Groot is this uh, sapling tree that only says three words, I am Groot, and everybody seems to understand what he's saying. And there's Rocket the raccoon, who's like this pyromaniac, super genius, who likes to blow things up. And they're in this intergalactic war uh, with some bad guys. They are the guardians of the galaxy. Um, Long story short, there is this pivotal moment where there's a mechanism there, and sure enough, it has the red button. And Rocket the Raccoon is like, whatever you do, Groot, don't press the red button. And Groot is like, I am Groot, and he's going for it, and he freaks out, and everybody's trying to get him uh, to not be around the red button. And Rocket the Raccoon eventually screams out, uh, hey, can we cover it? Can we cover the red button with some tape? The death, the death button, can we cover it up with tape? Because he knows whatever you do, don't press the red button. Of course, it always gets pressed, right? I'm using this lighthearted illustration because um, what, what we have to talk about is um, very serious and uh, frankly, very uh, heavy and perhaps uh, scary to you because you heard Jesus in his amen statement, truly, truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Every sin that you and I commit, every single sin except this one, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, whatever you do, don't press that red button. This is a sin that is so bad if I commit it that I can't be forgiven. This is the so-called unforgivable sin. And theologians tell us that it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of Christianity. Uh, Dr. Ed Welch is a, a psychotherapist and a theologian. And he says this, 
Pound for pound, the passage on the unforgivable sin can deliver the most guilt in all of Scripture. And so we need to get to the bottom of it. Because maybe you're coming in this morning and you're feeling that guilt or that fear of having perhaps or possibly being able to commit the unforgivable sin. And when you hear Jesus say something like, whatever you do, don't press the red button, you, you may wonder, does that, does that really sound like Jesus? So I want to ask three questions this morning with you of our text to get to the bottom of this. What is the context of Jesus' warning? What is the unforgivable sin? And last, can I commit it? Um, before we can define the unforgivable sin, we need to know about the context of this passage. Verse 22 tells us that the scribes, you can think of them as like the federal theology police, the scribes came down, they descended from Jerusalem to Galilee. And they're not just descending 1,000 meters for that trip, they are condescending because they've come to find out whether or not this Jesus guy has bamboozled these poor, simple country folk that, you know, may not know any better. It's not that they were so concerned about right doctrine. They came down because they were so concerned about power. And this Jesus guy was threatening their power because he was wooing disciples to himself and thus away from them. They were jealous. As they approach this situation, they can't deny that Jesus doesn't have power because the very first miracle we get in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus uh, exercising a demon, casting out a demon. Jesus has no power isn't a valid argument. Everyone would say, yeah, sure he does. So the scribes attack the source of Jesus' power. You hear what the text says. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Who is Beelzebul? Uh, some say that this would be Satan's chief demon. Uh, others suspect that maybe it's actually Satan himself. Regardless, what they are saying is that Jesus' power comes from the fact that he is possessed by demons or by Satan himself. And that, if it sounds like a serious accusation, is a serious accusation. Jesus hears it, and then he proceeds to obliterate that accusation with two parables, quick parables. Uh, the first is in verse 23 through 26. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. What is Jesus saying? Look, my job, the purpose of being here is to destroy the kingdom of Satan, to do things like cast out demons. Um, that's what casting out demons is all about, destroying Satan's kingdom. Why would Satan send demons to possess people and then use me, inspire me to cast out the demons? That, that makes no sense. And then the next parable he uses is even shorter, uh, but even more beautiful if we'll slow down enough to notice its redemptive significance. Verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. 
I think this is so interesting. Um, in this parable, who is the robber? No, not Satan. Who's the robber? It's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the robber. Who's the strong man? That would be Satan. Jesus is teaching us burglary 101, right? And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to go and rob a house, you don't just walk into the house and start grabbing the stuff that you want. Not when there's a strong man in the house. You've got to go into the house, find the strong man, and bind the strong man, tie him up, and then you grab the stuff that you want to steal. Now that's kind of silly and a little like shocking that Jesus would say something like that. Except what's the redemptive significance? What's the stuff he wants to steal from Satan, the strong man? It's us. It's you and me. It's his church. It's his people who are under captivity of sin and death. Jesus kicks in the door and he binds Satan and he takes us and he slings us over his shoulder to save us from our former evil master. The evil strong man is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Amen. Binding the strong man and rescuing us from his grip, by the way, is supposed to point us already in Mark's gospel to the, to the power of Jesus' death on the cross, to forgive us from our sins. Because as we picture Jesus with an armful of his people having just been rescued, What's the first thing he talks about in verse 25 or 28? Forgiveness. Amen, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. There is forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ as he bears the penalty for our sins. This is the gospel. There is forgiveness. Except for that one sin. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Everything will be okay, but whatever you do, don't press the red button. What is the unforgivable sin? Um, well, let me tell you what I don't think it is. I don't think that it is very helpful to use other parts of the New Testament where we hear kind of similar things and to interpret this with those. For example, um, what Paul says uh, about when he, is, uh, when he describes grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 or in 1 Thessalonians 5. Because when Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit there, he's not talking to opponents of Jesus. He's talking to actual followers of Jesus who are growing and growing in some areas, but in other areas they are stagnant because they are resisting God's work of holiness in their hearts. That's very different than this, okay? Similarly, the apostasy passages in Hebrews aren't particularly helpful. They're not a one-to-one -one comparison to what Jesus is saying here. Why is that? It's because an apostate claims at one point to be a follower of Jesus and then consciously at some other point turns away from God for the rest of his or her life. But not everyone who commits the unforgivable sin has claimed at one point to be a follower of Jesus, and that is key. The teachers of the law 
who confront Jesus here were not apostates because they never claimed to be followers of Jesus in the first place. So in this case, it is much better to build our definition of the unforgivable sin with the context of this passage. I think this, the context and what Jesus says here is sufficient to do that. To blaspheme is to speak against something or to curse it. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, okay, does that mean that it's just to speak against the Holy Spirit or to curse the Holy Spirit? Don't think about pink elephants. You just did it, didn't you? This is the way many Christians think about this. If, if they're told, hey, don't you dare curse the Holy Spirit, they're worried, oh no, did I just do it? Oh shoot, I just did it. Oh. And then they think that they, that they just committed the unforgivable sin. That is not what Jesus is warning the teachers of the law that they were about to do. Rather, here's our definition. The unforgivable sin is an ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, which says that Jesus is God and Savior. I'll say it again. The unforgivable sin is an ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, which reveals that Jesus is God and Savior. Not only were these teachers of the law rejecting that Jesus was God and Savior, they were saying instead of him that Jesus is possessed by Satan, not possessed by the Holy Spirit. This is why in verse 30, Jesus finishes, or the passage finishes saying, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And these teachers of the law should have known better logically, professionally, and experientially. They were ordained Bible experts. They should have seen the Messiah coming from a mile away, and yet they didn't. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus. That's why there's actually this really sad irony with the first parable that Jesus tells about a house being divided against itself. Because Jesus' own house, his own people, who should be for him, receiving him, are actually rejecting him. His own pastors, his own expert theologians are divided against him, saying he's, he's possessed by the evil one himself. And if they keep going down this path of rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit, revealing that Jesus is God and Savior, then soon, Jesus is saying, it will be too late for them. So what about me, Pastor? <clears throat> Can I commit the unforgivable sin? Can I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Um, I know that this is deeply uh, troublesome for some of you. I want to try to alleviate um, some of that so that you can rest in the forgiving grace of Jesus. First thing I would say to you, just the fact that you are worried about this is a sign that you're not guilty of committing the unforgivable sin. The scribes didn't care. They did not care. They were heartless enemies of Jesus, but you care which is a sign that you're not a Holy Spirit blaspheming enemy of Jesus. That's a sign actually of the work of the Holy Spirit, the fact that you would even wonder this question. 
Um, I'm borrowing again from Dr. Ed Welch, who counsels um, scrupulous, maybe over-scrupulous and compulsive uh, Christians uh, who worry that they have committed, obsessed that they have committed the unforgivable sin. He points out some of the important differences between these teachers of the law and Christians like that, or maybe Christians like you. He says, first of all, this was not just accidental or compulsive blasphemy. This was aggressive, active, antagonistic, calling the power of Jesus, the power of Satan, and influencing others to do that too. Do you honestly, when you read the miracles of Jesus in Scripture, say, that's got to be Satan and not Jesus? I doubt that very much. Second, he says, remember, these are religious leaders. They're not normal church people. Spiritual leaders in the Bible are called to a higher standard. They give account, as we said this morning in our Sunday school class. So if you were a theologian or a pastor who was actively, aggressively convincing others that Jesus was not divine, did not die an atoning death, and was not resurrected, then you might have reason to fear. And if you were adding on to that, that he instead was possessed by Satan, then you would have real reason to fear. But if you're not a spiritual leader and you're not teaching that stuff, then you don't have reason to fear that you have committed the unforgivable sin. Welch says that teachers of the law were modern-day pharaohs in terms of having their, hard, their hearts hardened. And sometimes when we read the book of Exodus and the parts that mention Pharaoh having a hard heart, we feel bad for poor Pharaoh. Like, oh, that poor guy. I mean, God just, God just gave him a hard heart. But when you reread it and you pay attention, God gave Pharaoh exactly what Pharaoh wanted. Pharaoh wanted a godless life. Pharaoh wanted a heart that had nothing to do with God. And so God cooperated with him and gave Pharaoh a hard heart that was too far gone. But you, you don't want that. I suspect that you want forgiveness. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's why you're worried to begin with, right? Because you don't want to think of a world in which there's one thing that you can't be forgiven for. You want forgiveness. These teachers of the law didn't want it because they think that what Jesus was offering was actually evil. The most comforting reality of this passage is this. God is more forgiving than we are sinful. God is more forgiving than we are sinful. The whole point of Jesus giving this warning and allowing it to be recorded in Scripture so that we could read it and learn from it is that people would listen to this story and turn from their sins and seek forgiveness in Jesus. And we don't know, but maybe, just maybe, some of these teachers of the law are in heaven because they did just that, because God is more forgiving than we are sin, sinful. Ed Welch says this, God forgives those who come to him. Whenever there is turning to Christ in repentance, there is always forgiveness. There is no account in scripture of someone who felt godly sorrow and repented, but was not forgiven. No. Not one. 
One of my friends a few years ago told uh, this story. It's the story of Paco. Paco was uh, estranged from his father, and he had been for many years. Um, he hadn't spoken to his father, hadn't seen his father, run away from his father, was living on the streets of Madrid, Spain. Uh, his dad knew that his son was um, headed for total destruction, and he wanted to do something about it. And so he was desperate to get his son back, but he had no way to contact Paco. So he did something rather unconventional. He took out an ad in the newspaper, El Liberal, and it said this in Spanish. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. So he goes there that day. And Paco is a pretty common name in Spain. And he found 800 young men there waiting for the forgiveness of their father, all with the name Paco. Are you one of them? Do you want forgiveness? It's yours in Christ Jesus who lived and died and rose for you. Whatever you do, don't press the red button, Rocket the Raccoon says. Does anyone have any tape out there? We can cover over the death button. Cover over the red button with tape. Jesus says, why don't we cover it over with grace? Let's just take the red button away altogether because it is impossible for a Christian who longs for forgiveness to commit the unforgivable sin because in Christ, God is more forgiving than we are sinful. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this, um, what can be a scary passage that brings with it um, such balm, such grace and goodness, um, to know the security of being your daughter or your son this morning. Lord, we, um, we long to be people um, who really understand forgiveness and who live freely out of the forgiveness we have towards, obedient, uh, towards obedience, Lord. We long for security and belonging in the family, not constantly wondering, do you love me? Do you not love me? What if I mess up? What if I'm too bad? But just people who realize, wait, I am way worse than I realize and far more love than I could ever dare imagine in Jesus. Would you please help us to live like that? We pray for his glory and for our good.